Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fandango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. <sighs> Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango. It's your ticket to the movies. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, the post-draft edition of the Peter King Podcast, where I'll have three guests, and then I'll give you an extended view of the stories that I thought really mattered on draft weekend. So my guests, I interviewed Steve Keim, the general manager of the Arizona Cardinals, and Cliff Kingsbury, his head coach, at the Cardinals facility on Saturday afternoon after the draft, two days after they made Kyler Murray their quarterback of the future, one day after Kime traded Josh Rosen to the Miami Dolphins. Interesting comments coming up from Kime and Kingsbury. Then, on Thursday night of draft weekend, I was in Denver, and I talked to the head coach of the Broncos, Vic Fangio, uh, who sort of busted the mold a little bit this year. He's a defensive guy when everyone in the league was focused on offense. So we'll talk to him about his plans with the Denver Broncos. Before I get to my conversations, I want to dig deep. This is going to be a little bit longer monologue than I usually have at the top of the podcast, just because there's a few things I want to say about places where I was and stories that really hit me about draft weekend. Let me start by explaining what I did on draft weekend. Normally, uh, for those of you who've been following me or who know uh, what I've done over the years, I tried every year to get into a draft room and to be able to report exclusively from inside a draft room. I've done it recently uh, with the Rams. I did it with the uh, San Francisco 49ers two years ago. I did it with the Dallas Cowboys three years ago. But last year and this year, I've come up short. I thought I was going to get the Raiders this year, but it just didn't quite work out in Mike Mayock's first year. So what I decided to do this year is put myself in position to try to do as much as I could with two or three teams in being mobile during the draft. So uh, I watched the first round of the draft from Denver Broncos draft headquarters, spent some time afterwards with GM John Elway and Vic Fangio, the head coach. You'll hear from Vic Fangio soon. Then on day two, I flew early Friday morning from Denver to uh, Oakland and I spent about 45 minutes late Friday morning in Oakland in his office with Mike Mayock, the new general manager of the Oakland Raiders. 
Uh, and after rounds two and three on Friday, I spent about a half hour with John Gruden uh, dissecting what had happened uh, in the draft so far. Then I woke up Saturday morning and flew to Phoenix. Drove over to Tempe, Arizona, which is the home of the Arizona Cardinals. And I ended up, after the Cardinals wrapped up their draft and after they wrapped up their undrafted free agents uh, signings, uh, I spent, I don't know, a half hour or so with Steve Keim and, and Cliff Kingsbury, and you will hear from them uh, soon. So that was my, uh, that's what I did over the course of the weekend. And so now I'll just give you a few thoughts about where I was. So let's talk a minute about the Oakland Raiders. In my opinion, I think this was a meat and potatoes draft for the Oakland Raiders. This was a draft where uh, Mike Mayock was determined to get cornerstone players uh, who not only would be good players for his franchise, but would be the kind of guys who will uh, set a tone, establish a tempo in his locker room. Uh, Cleland Furl, uh, drafted fourth overall, uh, was obviously a reach at number four, uh, but they were determined not to lose Furl. And um, they wanted to trade, but as I wrote on Monday in my column, my Football Morning in America column, uh, the phone did not ring in that 10-minute period. So they sat where they were and took Furl. Uh, and then, obviously, the next two picks, their number one running back, they've wanted him for two months. They've had their hearts set on getting him, Josh Jacobs. I think uh, John Gruden is going to put the ball in Josh Jacobs' hands 320 to 350 times this year. He's going to be a huge presence in this offense. And then a tone-setting thumper at number 27, Jonathan Abram, uh, safety from Mississippi State. You know, that gives basically three starting safeties, um, you know, added to the, uh, you know, right now with the with the Oakland Raiders. So it's going to be up to Paul Gunther to basically say to Jonathan Abram, look, you may have to play some down in the box. Uh, you, you may have to play basically some some linebacker. Uh, so we'll see we'll see how they use them. But I think these were tone setting guys for this organization. You know, the one interesting thing I saw in Oakland is how much John Gruden, in my opinion, needed Mike Mayock. You know, Mayock is an interesting guy, as, as you all know, for the last 18 years, he's been a draft meister in the media, you know, most, most often with, uh, with NFL Network. And, um, you know, he's, he's always had an opinion, and now he gets to put his opinion, you know, on paper, and uh, he gets to put his money where his mouth was. Um, so we'll see what happens. But I think it's really important that John Gruden has somebody who he trusts. And the one thing I can tell you is that I think 
When John Gruden took this job a year ago, it was a bit of an arranged marriage with GM Reggie McKenzie. Now he looks at Mike Mayock and he sees a guy. Now that guy's a worker bee. I trust that guy. So I think this is going to be a good marriage. Now, you know, Gruden is, you know, always, you know, ends up at odds with, with people who he works with. It's just the way he is, ultra competitive guy. So we'll see how it works. But for now, the honeymoon is very much on in Oakland. Let's talk about the New York Giants. Uh, spent some time on the phone on Sunday with Dave Gettleman, the general manager, staunchly defensive about his pick of Daniel Jones at number six, uh, the quarterback from Duke, which, you know, obviously, as you've heard, has been a wildly controversial pick, the biggest and most controversial choice in this draft, and I don't think it's even close for second place there. But um, I, I don't so much mind the pick of Daniel Jones in the first round, but I do think that if I were the New York Giants, I would have risked missing out on Daniel Jones in order to get the pass rusher, Josh Allen, with the sixth pick overall. Um, I still think they would have been able to get Daniel Jones at 17, and if they had to trade up to whatever, 13, 14, somewhere in there, uh, you know, in order to make sure they got him, then they could have done that. But I think they're going to regret passing on the pass rusher uh, because the Giants right now trading Olivier Vernon to the Cleveland Browns, uh, that was their best edge guy they had. And so they don't have a great edge rusher right now in this organization, and uh, that's bothersome. But I think the one other thing that you have to look at right now, and look, I'm never one to play the future card all the time. I'm never one to say, well, you'll get your quarterback next year. I just, I don't really believe in that. However, you can't ignore the fact that next year, high in the first round, at least three quarterbacks, Tua Tagovailoa from Alabama, Jake Fromm from Georgia, Justin Herbert from Oregon, are all going to be available next year. And you have to figure that those are three top 10 caliber quarterbacks. If the Giants aren't very good, they're going to be sitting there, and who knows, maybe they'll be able to trade their pick and get some more draft capital. But what, what Dave Gettleman said in this draft is, I like Daniel Jones enough to bypass what is going to be a much stronger quarterback draft uh, from what the scouts say in 2020. So this decision to take Daniel Jones has far-reaching implications for the New York Giants, as everybody knows. Let's go to Baltimore. I thought Baltimore made a very, very interesting pick in the sixth round. They picked Trace McSorley, the quarterback from Penn State. So why am I going to talk about Trace McSorley for a minute? I think it's very, very simple. Uh, a very smart head coach, uh, Sean Payton of the New Orleans Saints, did something in the last couple of years. He took a quarterback from Brigham Young named Taysom Hill, who's very fast, uh, very physical, and a very competitive guy. And he made him an ace core special teams player as well as a guy who will play six to eight to ten plays every week in his offense. So uh, I think this is the Baltimore Ravens' attempt to get a versatile, 
backup, you know, third string quarterback, which is probably what McSorley will be, but a guy who will also play some special teams, might even play a little bit of slot receiver. You, you don't know what his role is going to be, but I expect him to be active on Sundays for the Baltimore Ravens. And I think he's the kind of player who John Harbaugh is going to fall in love with. Ultimate gamer, uh, extremely competitive guy, has a very good arm. You know, he doesn't have a Brett Favre arm necessarily, but he's got a very good arm. And there's a lot that I think an imaginative team like the Baltimore Ravens can do. I really, really like the pick of Trace McSorley. Let's go to New England. I let New England in getting Chase Winovich, uh, Winovich, the uh, sort of jackknife uh, defensive front seven player. He can rush the passer. He can be very, very versatile guy. I like that pick. I do not like the Patriots exiting this draft without a tight end. Um, you know, in my opinion, I think right now, you look at the Patriots, they had six picks between 35 and 101 entering this draft. How they didn't come up with a tight end in that uh, in that time period, I think is, is uh, a blown situation uh, by Bill Belichick and the Patriots. You know, Jay Sternberger was picked by the Green Bay Packers. And, and look, I'm not saying that uh, Jay Sternberger is, you know, going to be an, an all-pro or is going to be the next Gronkowski. But the, the, the Packers picked Jay Sternberger, who's really a Patriots kind of player, 75th overall. Um, the Patriots had enough draft capital to go get him or another tight end, and they just didn't do it. I thought that was a mistake. Let's go to Denver, where the Denver Broncos, uh, I think, had a very, very interesting draft weekend. Uh, a lot of people say, well, wait a second. They traded down from 10 to 20 uh, and blew a shot at giving, getting Devin Bush, who would have been a great sideline-to-sideline -side playmaker for them. I just think that um, the way Vic Fangio looks at his defense, he didn't see a great need there for Devin Bush, even though they probably would have taken him at 10. Uh, it would have taken him at 10, honestly, if, uh, uh, if, if they stayed at 10. But instead, they go down to 20, and they get Noah Fant, the tight end from Iowa, who is going to become, in time, Joe Flacco's best friend this year, because Flacco loves throwing to the tight end. Now, in my mock draft a week ago, I had Drew Locke, the Missouri quarterback, going to Denver late in the first round with the Broncos trading up into the end of the first round to pick him. It turns out the Broncos did have to trade up, but not to pick number 31 where I had him, but they traded up to pick number 42 with Cincinnati and got Drew Locke right there. When I left the Broncos facility on Thursday night, John Elway basically said we're not going to be in the market for a quarterback this year because we're happy with Flacco. We're going to give him every chance to be our, our long-term guy, so let's see what happens. And then he got up Thursday or Friday morning, huddled with Matt Russell and said, man, this guy's the number one quarterback on our board. If we can get him somewhere in the 40s, we have to try to do that. So that's exactly what happened. Broncos, I think, got lucky. Uh, in getting Drew Lockett number 42. 
You know, I, I I liked a lot what Jacksonville did, getting Josh Allen at seven, Juwan Taylor, who should be a starting tackle for them soon at number 35. A lot of people had Juwan Taylor much, much higher, uh, right in the meat of the first round, so I like what Jacksonville did. And look, I'm not crazy about the Saints continuing to trade and borrow from the future for today, but they had a desperate need with the retirement of Max Unger at center. They got a day one starting center in Eric McCoy with the 48th pick in this draft. Now, it cost them heavily. It cost them really the the second round pick next year in the draft, but at least now they should have their long-term center, which is a vital position in the New Orleans offense. (laughs) Finally, a few words about Washington. I really, really like what they did in the first round of this draft, getting uh, Dwayne Haskins at number 15. Uh, That was their quarterback all along, as it turned out. It was uh, a decision the owner very much backed, Dan Snyder. He wanted a franchise quarterback. He wants to stop fooling around with the Case Keenums of the world. He knows that Alex Smith is going to have a difficult time coming back from a, a terrible fractured leg. Um, so look, I, I, I think that this is probably not going to be their quarterback this year necessarily, but Dwayne Haskins is going to be their quarterback soon. But the pick I really liked here, and again, I'm not positive that Montez Sweat, uh, the, the speed demon pass rusher from Mississippi State is going to be very good, but at 26 overall, the 26th overall pick for a guy who runs a 4440. Uh, and who is going to give uh, Washington a great edge presence. I thought was very good value. You have to trust the Washington doctors who say that the heart issue that uh, was discovered postseason by doctors uh, is going to be managed. Most teams, I believe, think that that heart issue is going to be managed and is going to be okay, and we'll see. But I think the 26th pick in the draft over an explosive pass uh, to use for an explosive pass rusher like Montez Sweat, I thought was very, very good value. So we're going to get to our conversations now, but I, I, I wanted to go a little bit longer in my, uh, my preamble to the podcast just because I don't normally get to opine uh, at length about issues, and I really thought that there were a lot of things that that hit me about this draft uh, over the three days that, that I really wanted to get out. Hope you enjoyed it, and I really hope that uh, uh, you uh, enjoy this podcast. I'm going into my twice-a-month mode now for the next two months before training camp starts, so I've really appreciated your uh you're, you being a, a great audience over the last three years, really, uh, but especially this year. It's been a lot of fun bringing you these conversations, and I hope you enjoy the ones I'm going to bring you this week. And now my conversation together with Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach of the Cardinals, and the general manager of the Cardinals, Steve Keim. Back on the Peter King Podcast here in Tempe, Arizona with uh, the brain trust of the Arizona Cardinals, Steve Keim, the general manager, Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach. Uh, Cliff, I'm going to start with you. We've just finished seven-round NFL draft, 
and you have you have drafted and you're going to have a guy who I believe you have sort of wanted to coach since he was 15 years old and that's Kyler Murray and I want you to explain if you can just a little bit about the genesis of your relationship and your recruiting relationship with Kyler Murray back then as a high school player in Texas. Yeah, I've known about Kyler a long time, known his, his dad for a long time, and so um, followed his career at a young age. Um, got to watch him play as a sophomore and kind of saw that this was a unique talent, a unique player. Um, started telling his dad then that even though he was small, I felt like there was going to be a place for him in college football and um, that I, I felt like he'd be a star. And, and sure enough, um, we offered him there at Texas Tech and continued to follow him. When he was a sophomore, you offered him? And we did. And he was probably 5'2 out there, 5'3. <laughs> um, but nobody could touch him. And he could throw it from the pocket. And the mechanics were great. And he was the quickest player on the field. Um, and I, I just always believed that he could be great. I'd never seen anything like it on the field. Um, a combination of that type of quickness and explosiveness and a true drop back passer. And so we developed a relationship um, through the years and, and he always knew that I believed in, in him and, and saw great things coming. And uh, it's just been a wild ride and crazy to see how it's all turned out. So who else was after him? back when he was 15 not, years not many old. people i don't yeah. think many people thought that it, it would uh translate you know running around and being i mean he probably was legitimately five five at that time but you know he's winning state championships he never lost a game in high school and he was just the most dynamic best player on the field every time he stepped out there and people got in the mix a little bit later on but there for a while i think everybody just assumed since he was undersized he you know he couldn't play at the next level and uh what happened at the end of his high school career that caused him to uh, pick the college he picked? Yeah, you know, his dad went to Texas A&M, so I knew I was yeah. up against it the whole time. But I thought if I got in there early enough and, and showed what we were going to do, and we'd had success, obviously, um, with some of the quarterbacks we had, Patrick and Baker and those guys, and um, but didn't, didn't get him in the end. Let's fast forward to this weekend. What leads you to believe that he can have that kind of success in the NFL? Yeah, I think more than anything, having watched up close and personal, you know, the MVP of the league this past year in Baker Mayfield and seeing how their games have transitioned in, in certain systems to this league and, and the success they've had, um, you know, he's right in line with those guys. He's got that type of ability, played in a similar system. Um, and, and so uh, just a matter of going out there and doing it now. Do you feel bad in any way for Josh Rosen and what happened in his situation here? I like Josh Rosen a lot being around him the last three weeks. I couldn't have been more impressed. I've said this. I, I think people thought it was just hyperbole and I was blowing smoke, but he, he was a phenomenal um, you know, quarterback in that room and, and paid attention and was locked in and was leading last week on the field. And, and so I'm a big fan, and, and I let him know that, and I'll be following him and pulling for him moving forward. Steve Keim. So – in your mind, over the last couple of months, when did you get a real good feel that this Kyler Murray thing might actually be real? And when did you think that you were going to seriously consider picking him number one? Well, the interesting thing, Peter, was uh, I had a number of my, my colleagues that would, would call me or text me and say, can you believe this Kyler Murray? And I, I, I would sheepishly say, I haven't even studied him yet. Uh, and I said this the other day, I, I was reluctant to study him because uh, 
I knew what we had in Josh Rosen. I thought that uh, Josh had great potential. I really liked the person as well. Um, but I also knew that I owed it to the organization and to myself to go into this thing organically and keep an open mind. And that's exactly what I did. And I'll never forget watching and as I watched the first game, I watched the second game, and I couldn't put down the controller because all I wanted to do is keep watching this kid on tape. And I don't know if I wrote down wow 100 times or 500 times, but my hand got tired of writing because it was amazing. And in the time I've been doing this, I haven't seen a guy who could throw it like him and run it like him. I've seen guys who could do one of each, but I've never evaluated a guy in the time I've done this that – possesses the skill set to do both things at such a high level. I want to know what it was like for you over the last couple of months. The NFL had to have a TV show for the draft. You had to have uh, you had to pick the best player for the team and you had the whole Josh Rosen thing. This this had to be one of the ultimate tightrope walks that you could make as a guy in your position. What has that been like? Uh, you know, it's hard to describe it, but it is. it pulls at you emotionally because, again, there's a number of things that go through your head. Uh, again, I said it many times, I owe it to the organization to do the right thing and, uh, and also supply our coaches with the best players to succeed. Uh, but at the same time, um, I was also studying guys that I was falling in love with, seeing guys like Nick Bosa and Quentin Williams, other players who are dominant at their position, and really having to, to really weigh which player here uh, gives us and makes the biggest impact for us to have success moving forward. And it became crystal clear in the end it was Kyler Murray. Let me finish by asking you some of the true-false things that – have been on the street in the last mm -hmm. few days and maybe a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, a, true or false, you guys actually decided to pick Kyler Murray around the time of the combine? False. Not close? To that, at that point, I hadn't studied the film. And so when would you say that you really did dive into it? Uh... I dove into the film after free agency because I got busy with free agency and studying all those players, and we signed a number of free agents, uh, more so than years past. So it was some time after that, and then I had to be honest with myself and say, okay, well, we have to, to do our due diligence, and we have to go to the school. Even though Cliff may have had a relationship with him, the thing that I would say I respect the most about Cliff is he never once interrupted the process he never once came down and put his fist on the table and said i want kyler murray i have to have him i knew that he loved him as a player but he never once uh stepped in and said i have to have this guy he allowed the process to take care of itself and to me that was the only way we were going to get it right true or false you told quinn and williams and bosa that they were candidates to help make this a television show? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I told them that they would be considered for the first pick true. And how much sort of, I guess, pressure was there knowing that 
you really had to keep a tight circle. You had to keep a secret. And I'll tell you a very quick story. Someone who is really smart in the league and who's been a general manager for a long time called me on Wednesday night and said, I honestly think they're not taking Kyler Murray. So how did you do that? You know, I think it's it's one of those things that uh, we just kept things really close to the vest and we kept it internal. And uh, at the end, um, there was only a certain amount of information that was, was going to be talked about. And, you know, when it came to make the final decision, that would be discussed between coach, myself, and Michael Bidwell, our owner. And um, so more so than ever, I would say that uh, we were tighter with the information, uh, even internally. Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website, so create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. That's Wix.com slash Peter King. You'll be glad you did. And now my conversation with Vic Fangio, the head coach of the Denver Broncos. In Denver, on the first day of the draft... I'm here with Vic Fangio, the head coach of the Denver Broncos. Vic, this is post-round one. We're up in your office. You're sort of, uh, you know, reflecting on what happened in this round. Did it go the way you thought it would go, making the trade from 10 to 20 and going down to take Noah Fant? Well, all along we thought that um, depending upon how the first nine picks went, that trade down was a potential scenario. And um, and then we had um, more than one, one. There was more teams than Pittsburgh that called interested in that pick. So it did get a little hectic on the uh, during our ten minutes. You know, in fact, we had a car had a name on a card. We were ready to go with it. And uh, Pittsburgh came back with a uh, offer that we had asked for, and so we did the trade. You know, I think it's important to uh, you know the, moving the ten spots. We got a mid-round, second-round pick tomorrow and a third round next year. I think it's always good to go into the next year's draft with uh, extra picks to start off, you know, in case you want to move up or move around in the draft. You got some flexibility, and maybe during the season at some point you do have to make a trade to help your own team. You don't feel like you're denting next year's draft too much when you got extra. So. We felt it was worthwhile, and I, John made the decision and went with it, and I was all on board. I always thought that coming out of this draft, 
you're a defensive coach, and uh, I always thought that you would want a defensive player out of this draft. Now, that's probably just some bad assumptions, but how tough was it for you to let go of Devin Bush there at number 10? Well, I think you're right in what you said about me, but that was in a prior life. (laughs) When you were a coordinator (laughs) and not a head coach. Correct. So now I'm more concerned with, you know, the whole picture. and, uh, And I always was, to be honest with you. But I felt good about what we did, you know. Obviously, Bush is a good player, somebody that we did a lot of work on. Um, he was somebody we, we were considering there. I'm not saying he was the guy we were going to take at 10. But, um, again, we just thought the value of the trade um, trumped who we were going to pick at that time. Vic, now that you've had an opportunity, you've had your players in here, including Joe Flacco, John Elway made it very clear to me that – Joe Flacco's performance at their at your recent minicamp um, kind of nixed any idea of taking a quarterback high in this draft. A, how did Flacco look? B, did you agree with John's take on that? I do agree with John on that. And it wasn't just uh, last week's minicamp. You know, he's been throwing. You know, the offense can throw on air out there in phase one and phase two and um, on their own and stuff and – He's looked good throwing the ball and um, did have a very good camp. He's followed it up with a very good week this week when we started phase two and we were able to run plays on air and guys were able to run routes and he's throwing. He still has the same pop in his arm that he always had. When I remember when I was with him his first two years in the league. And I think Joe's uh, got a lot of good football left in him. You know, I think the – Situation in Baltimore was unusual the way it unfolded, you know, from many different angles. And uh, we feel fortunate to have them. So right now, as you look at your team, you got a long way to go still in this draft. But as you look at your team, especially offensively and its ability to compete, what do you think? Oh, I like our offense. I, I said since early on since I got here that I thought our offense was better than the perception people had of it, you know, from a talent standpoint. And I, and I still feel that way. Um, we got some young offensive tackles that we like. You know, we got Joe now. We got a core of running backs that we like. We got young receivers along with Emmanuel Sanders that we like. Those guys are going to make big jumps this year. Hamilton and Cortland Sutton that were rookies last year. You know, I, I like where we're at offensively. I'll end with this, Vic. You you sort of bucked the trend uh, in in hiring this year. Obviously, being a defensive guy, um, I, you know, during the playoffs, I remember Joe Buck said on Fox that uh, the two baristas of Sean McVay are going to get interviewed this week for head coaching jobs because it seemed like if you had any connection to Sean McVay you were going to have a chance to get a job. But nobody wanted those, you know, the poor old defensive guys. So you come in and you've now got to deal with an offense in Kansas City that's got the MVP, the young quarterback with Patrick Mahomes. 
the the Chargers, obviously, with a great offense led by a quarterback who's been through it all, Phillip Rivers. And the Raiders, you don't really know quite what to expect, but now they get Josh Jacobs. They got Derek Carr. They got Antonio Brown. They, got, they have so many weapons on that team. So you look at those six games a year now for you, and I wonder what you think of that, especially now that you're a head coach for a team in that division. Well, those three teams that you mentioned are very stout. Um, you know, Oakland was down last year by design. You know, I know nobody's ever said that in those terms, but and but you figure they trade away two of their three best players. So, what do you think is going to happen? Right, and they open up a lot of salary cap space, which they used in the off season in free agency. They had the three number one picks that I'm sure they're counting on being starters for them. They have a high second round pick tomorrow. Um, so I'm sure they're thinking they're going to get four or five starters out of this draft along with the free agency pickups that they made. And they're going to be a drastically different team this year from last year. And, you know, it's John's second year there. He's got more of a handle on the situation, feeling players out, feeling the team out. I'm sure he's got a much better feel and handle on where to go with the team, and and now they've got better direction. And as you mentioned, Kansas City, obviously with Mahomes, they're a real threat. You know, they they were an offsides penalty from being in the Super Bowl last year. They scored 31 points in the second half on New England to do that, and you know they're they're very prolific on offense, and they will be for a long time with that quarterback feel like I've left the NFC Central and Aaron Rodgers and now I've got the younger version of him here now. And the Chargers are just a damn good football team with led by a very veteran quarterback who seems to be like fine wine. He's not aging very much. He can still hum that ball in there and make all the throws that he's always made. He's a tough guy. He's a leader. They've got a good defense. They're balanced on offense. So we definitely have our work cut out for us. You probably would know better than me, but we might have the toughest division in football here. Well, there if if there's a tougher one, I don't really know which one it is. Yeah. And 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 but the the thing about your situation that I find kind of cool, you get your first chance in a situation where you know, I think most people would look at it and say, oh, my God, how great is it? You get your first opportunity. It's wonderful, and it's great. But it isn't like you're going to a place where there's a bunch of 5-11 and 11 teams either. No. You know, I mean, you're going to have six games in this division where, uh, you know, I don't know if you'll be favored in many or any, but every one of them is going to be, you know, the old uh, the old all day sucker game. Yeah, well, yeah. it definitely will be, and um, and along with playing, we play the NFC Central next year. So we've got Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers. Minnesota will be back playing good football like they always have. We got the Bears coming off their good season, and Detroit's improving. So, you know, it, it's a tough schedule. Our division is extremely tough. You know, this isn't like. Uh, Playing in college football where there's four or five ones that you can pencil in as a W. You mean there's no Valdosta State in your no division? No Valdosta State. <laughs> I keep looking to see if we got Colorado School of Mines on the schedule, but they're not there yet. But, um, you know, it, it's the NFL, and 
everybody's good and you can get beat on any given Sunday by anybody. And, uh, you know, we'll probably start off with, hey, we can beat anybody before we get to be where, you know, we're the, right now we're the hunter rather than the hunted. So we'll, we'll kind of cherish that role for a while. Vic Fangio, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you, Peter. Thanks to my guests, Cliff Kingsbury of the Arizona Cardinals and his general manager, Steve Kime, and Denver coach Vic Fangio. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Wix. Please support Wix the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. We're entering the off-season mode right now, where I'll give you a podcast twice a month in May and June. You're going to like my next podcast. It's going to be about the helmet and the role of the helmet in the new NFL and how the NFL is trying to use new helmet technology to make the game safer. So tune back in for that in a couple of weeks and have a great spring.